Welcome back to season two of Remotely Curious. We are so excited to be back with you talking about virtual first work. We heard from so many thoughtful folks last season, from Dr. Marissa Franco about making friends as a grown-up on Zoom, to Stanford scientist Dr. Jeremy Balinson about Zoom fatigue and why it's so exhausting to stare at your face in a screen all day. And this season, well, I couldn't be more excited about our incredible guests. I've always had a bit of a fraught relationship with time. I think I was the only kid in fifth grade who actually used their teacher-issued planner to schedule out every hour of my preteen life. In college, my boyfriend, he's now my husband, joked that I always seemed in a hurry. I used to have to walk by his house to get to mine. And he told me recently, Tiff, you're always carrying one or like two cups of coffee. And I try to get you to come sit on the porch with us, but you were just always on your way somewhere. Over the years, I've put a lot of effort into making my time work for me. But no matter what technique I've used to be more efficient, the bullet journal method, the get things done approach, I tend to find myself back at square one. The problem isn't necessarily with the techniques themselves. It just seems that the more energy I spend optimizing my time, the less I actually enjoy it. I know I'm not alone here and it makes me wonder. Are there ways that we should rethink our relationship to time that go beyond efficiency? Ways that can help us feel better connected to our time in a spiritually healthy or satisfying way? Let's see if we can find out. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual first work. One of my friends who knows what an efficiency junkie I am recently recommended a book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I thought I might be entering another self-help realm about how to productively make the most out of every moment. But this incredible book, written by author and journalist Oliver Berkman, says that we'll never have full control over our time. And that rather than scaring us, this idea could actually empower us. Today, we'll have Oliver on the show talking about accepting our finitude. But first, we spoke to Gilbert Corrales, a friend of the show and CEO of his own company. He struggles with time management and wondered if we can help. I think as a CEO, it is what is top of mind all the time because you almost want to clone yourself and be able to be across multiple things when you can't. Right. Especially when you're trying to do so many critical things as a company, you know, like how at the end of the day, how do you split your time the best way possible? Though it was a struggle to adjust to living in quarantine, Gilbert found that suddenly he had much more time to focus on work when he was home all day. And when his company went remote, he was able to hire people from all over the world. So even though his business grew really quickly, he was able to keep up. I think my relationship with time has changed a lot more this year than it probably did throughout the whole of the pandemic. Because I feel like when you went into the pandemic, there was no other option, right? You kind of had to move into that mode. It is not until now that we're coming out of the pandemic and suddenly life is starting to happen that you go and realize, right, ain't a commodity is actually quite a limited resource. A lot of us are also still readjusting. I know I am. 
My work is still remote, but I've started going out to dinner again and hosting parties and taking my daughter to indoor soccer games. I love that I'm not in front of a computer screen quite as much. But with that, I notice I have to pack my tasks into tighter and tighter timeframes, so I feel a bit more rushed. Gilbert's been struggling with the exact same thing. I cannot duplicate myself. I cannot clone myself. I also cannot change everything overnight. How can I start prioritizing? How can also gain patience and be okay with the fact that it's going to take time to accomplish the things that I wish will to be happening overnight? This idea of trying to be more patient and to give ourselves more grace is something I've been thinking about for a while now. That's why I wanted to talk to our guest today, Oliver Berkman. For about 15 years, he wrote a very successful column at The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life, in which he investigated routes to mental well-being. He turned all of that experience into his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which rejects life hacks and encourages us to embrace our finitude in a radical way. I'm interested in the intersection between philosophy, psychology, and I mean, it's self-help, really, even though that sometimes gets a bad press. It's figuring out how to live in a bewildering world. It's a broad beat, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes. I went to divinity school, studied psychology as an undergrad and focused on ethics. So I'm very oh, interested wow. in the same strains mush of a Venn diagram <laughs> between those things. I've been a fan of Oliver's work for a long time. I've read his books and listened to the other podcasts he's been on. And I was curious how he became so immersed in the idea of time. It's a fickle, hard to understand concept. Because time is just the medium in which everything happens. So, uh, you know, I think there's something kind of amusing in a way or, or appealing to me as, a, as an author in taking a concept like time management, which has this reputation as being something very down to earth, perhaps a bit boring, perhaps a bit cheesy, and actually taking it so seriously that suddenly it's about like what we're doing on the planet and how to build a meaningful life. <laughs> so the small, insignificant, easy to answer questions, basically. <laughs> I have read that you've identified yourself as a recovering productivity junkie. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that. I mean, this book certainly was a book of advice that kind of I needed to hear. And it came at the end, as you say, of a long period of being kind of fixated on productivity systems and time management philosophies and techniques, really searching uh, for, you know, the magic bullet that was going to transform my life into a serene and wonderful thing where I could handle every demand that was thrown at me and mm. fulfill every ambition that I had without disappointing everybody. I think in in a certain way, that desire to feel secure and, and in control and like you're doing enough and that you're worthy is something close to a universal story. And I wrote a column for many years at the Guardian newspaper. One of the things I did there was to test out all these kinds of systems. So that was an interesting experience because when you try so many systems and philosophies and approaches, and though some have merit, none of them bring you this holy grail of finally feeling in control and like you can do all you need to do and all the rest of it. That's actually a very useful psychological experience to go through because you're like, oh, okay, maybe I'm asking the wrong question here. Maybe, mm. maybe there isn't this one brilliant system out there that's going to solve all these problems. And why don't those methods bring us satisfaction? 
I think that we are all in some way or another, and, and certainly productivity junkies especially, trying to feel in control of life and of our unfolding lives in a way that is actually just not open to human beings to have. So we want to feel like we can get our arms around an, a, a limitless quantity of stuff. And we also want a, a certain degree of control over how things are going to go. We want to know that we can trust in what the future holds. And I think that it is not feasible for finite humans to do an infinite amount of things. So we're kind of trying to, we're trying to solve a problem that isn't open to us to solve. And to get sort of Zen Buddhist about it, I suppose, the suffering comes from trying to find a solution, right? There's actually nothing intrinsically wrong with being a finite human with finite control. The problem is thinking there ought to be a way out of the human condition in that sense. Mm -hmm. 4,000 weeks time management for mortals. What were you hoping to evoke in readers with that title and subtitle? Time is so short, you've got to really, really focus on trying to squeeze all the value out of life. You've got to kind of um, develop this incredible sense of urgency and spend every day you possibly can doing fantastic things. And I'm happy to evoke that feeling uh, at the beginning. But what I'm actually trying to communicate as became clear to me during the writing of the book, is something else. There's something very, I think, calming and relaxing and liberating about really understanding what it means to have finite time. It's not a question of trying to pack as much into it as you possibly can. It's a question of reconciling yourself to the fact that you're only going to be able to do a handful of the many, many, many potential meaningful things you could do with a life. That's inevitable. That's built in. That's okay. And for me anyway, that knowledge is what sort of psychologically frees you up to really plunge in to those, to those things because you're no longer trying to, you know, hold open the possibility that, that maybe you'll get to thousands of meaningful things in your life. No, it'll be a handful and that will be absolutely enough and will completely fill uh, a life mm -hmm. with, with meaning. In your book, you outline, I think, 10 tools for embracing finitude. I'm wondering if you can share a few of your favorites. I feel on a bound to preface this by saying that I think what really matters here and what I care about the most in the context of this book is, is a sort of shift of perspective. And that if you can make that shift of perspective a little bit, I, I don't claim to have made it completely, towards embracing finitude, really, there are kind of thousands of techniques and methods you could use, including some of those old techniques that I initially rejected as a productivity geek, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with many of those approaches, Pomodoro technique, whatever it might be, right? As long as you're doing them in this spirit of really understanding your finitude instead of thinking that they're going to somehow save you from, from your finitude. All that said, I think one of, the, one of the ones that I come back to again and again is this idea of sort of choosing in advance certain domains of life that you're going to decide to, to fail at, uh, at least for now, not necessarily forever. If you decide at the beginning of a month or of a six-month period over a year, you know, like, this is not going to be a season where I get any DIY done or where the house is anything but just doing its minimal function as a house, 
then it's not a source of sadness that you don't get to those things because it's all part of the plan and you're sort of stepping into the truth of your limitations, freeing yourself up to focus on the things that you've decided to focus on instead. I think that young professionals starting out at the very beginning of their career should not feel bad about plunging entirely into work if that's what motivates them. And, uh, you know, people with newborn babies may not be able to completely back away from work, but shouldn't feel bad about giving it an sort of existentially secondary role in their lives for as long as they're able to get away with it, which I know in many places, including the US, is not is not for very long. But but um so it's you know it's just that sort of being honest about your capacities and as a result being able to perform at a higher level in the in the domains that you choose to focus on. I really love the idea of thinking in seasons where not all seasons bear the same fruit and that's quite natural. That's such a elegant way of thinking about it. I know that you've said there's no such thing as work-life balance. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, I'm, I'm partly just being provocative, but I think that what <laughs> I'm trying to get at there is that this notion that seems so delightful, so something you would want to aspire to, I think actually ends up being quite a sort of high-pressure idea, something that real-life can't be made to measure up to. I think in the hiding in the back of the idea of work-life balance is like there must be a way for you to be 100% the perfect worker and 100% the perfect person with a life outside work. And it doesn't work because uh, percentages don't work that way. The real point there is just that, again, because we are finite, because we have limited time, there's always going to be something and probably many things that are to some extent being neglected so that other things can be focused on. And it's much healthier and more calming, I think, to, to recognize that situation, to work with your particular circumstances and to figure out, you know, what kind of imbalance is, is right for you at this time, given, given your options. I mm. think boundaries between work and, and the rest of life are really important and we can totally talk about those. I'd actually love to talk about that. What are some ways that we can think about those boundaries? Well, I think this is something that that really goes to the heart of, of what we've been discussing, the sort of when work and life outside work merge for technological and other reasons, what actually happens is that work colonizes the whole of life. It isn't that, mm -hmm. it isn't that they're sort of blended. It's that, it's that one of them uh, runs the show and the other one has to take a back seat. I think that one of the wonderful things about any kind of temporal boundary is that it works against that. But part of it is that it actually creates a very bad situation for the very diligent and virtuous part of ourselves that wants to stay on top of things. It's not, it's not, it's not because you're a bad person, but it provides this possibility to be sort of climbing the infinite escalator of of tasks round the clock and um and and any kind of boundary whether a physical one like a locked office door or a sort of socially imposed one like hey it's sunday or hey it's saturday and uh, you know nobody works so what do you think you're doing um that can be tremendously useful for for bringing that bringing that balance for enabling us to rest when we need to rest so you've outlined some ways that people should rethink time, but time, like most big ideas, can be thought of very differently depending on where in the world you are. Are there any other ways to think of time that aren't so 
American? One that springs to mind is that I think we have a very strong cultural value, certainly in the Anglo-American world, of sort of individual time sovereignty. So there's this notion that the ideal, many people don't get to have it, but the ideal for everyone would be to 100% call the shots about when things happened in your day and your week and your and your month. And of course, that's really important. And, you know, I'm a big supporter of family-friendly, flexible workplace policies that, that help people have that flexibility. But I think there is something we are in danger of forgetting as a society, which has to do with the importance of synchronized and coordinated time. You know, you hear a lot about the necessity of taking one day a week off work or off your digital devices or something like that. And maybe not enough about the fact that in societies that have and still do practice kind of religious forms of the Sabbath, it's everyone on the same day. Like that's what that's actually what matters there. The fact that there's this kind of social reinforcement of stopping and resting. Yeah. In the States, you know, we have, I mean, similar in Europe at the end of the year, we have Christmas and Hanukkah and most people take off a few weeks of work. Mm -hmm. And so many people I know describe it as their favorite time of the year. And usually that's ascribed to because it's so cozy and it's the lights and the cookies. I've often wondered if it's because we're all not working at the same time (laughs) and how much the sort of synchronicity of it contributes to that sense of joy or collective, I don't know, the collective effervescence that people describe about it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting point. And actually, in my experience living in the States, you know, obviously, you guys don't do well on vacation time in general, but the public holiday side of it is actually rather more prominent than it is in the UK. And there is still that sense on certain days and certain times of year around Thanksgiving and the rest of it that like, yeah, it's like, not only do you not have to work, but you also don't have to worry about the emails piling up in your absence. Exactly. Uh, You don't have to worry about somebody sort of vying to steal your job in the office while you're not in it. If you're making a plan to visit relatives for that for that holiday, they are also going to be not working so that you can hang out with them. I'm always struck by, as someone who has a lot of freedom over his time, very privileged position in terms of, you know, I'm very busy, but I get to choose when an awful lot of stuff happens in my life. All this wonderful freedom. And yet it's really hard to make a plan to go meet two or three of my other friends in similar situations for a drink because we can never make the calendars coordinate because we are not working in these kind of grooves that people in certainly in sort of more traditional earlier times in history would have would have done. I can literally I can remember going going home from the newspaper office in the sort of 2000s and wouldn't have occurred to me to check email until I was back at the office the next day. So I think that the way those boundaries have been corroded, and that's obviously hugely um, accelerated in the last couple of years, and the way that those social rhythms have eroded are a problem. Whether we can, as individuals, do anything about it is, uh, is another question. There are just so many different ways that you could approach an hour or a day. How do we choose what to focus on in any given moment? Ah, uh, yes, the eternal question. I mean, it's a very interesting thing because you can really, especially in situations of extreme overwhelm, you can get into that situation where there are so many things to be done, so many options for how you could use that time well, that you kind of don't want to do any of them. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and end up sort of escaping the feeling of overwhelm by going and doing something sort of that you don't even care about much. I think the first thing that I try to remember in those situations is is just, again, the point that I've been making that there will always be too much to do. The point about the reason to use an hour on something important or meaningful is to use an hour on something important or meaningful. It is not to get to the end of all the things that the world is asking you to do, because that is never going to happen. And then you can sort of shift. I don't know if I'm conveying this properly, but you can shift your outlook from what should I be doing for the next hour in order to get on top of everything to, you know, this is an hour of my life and I would like it to be meaningfully spent rather than meaninglessly spent. So so what could I do with it? And of course, that might involve some rather tedious chores that you'd rather not do because that's a part of everybody's set of of things that that need doing. But at least then you're doing it not from any notion of I'm somehow going to win the battle with time. How do you think workplaces or even managers can help people rethink their relationship with time? I think so much of this comes from an individual person living and and modeling the approach to finitude, right? So I think that the one of the most important things you can do if you're a, a leader of a team is just to live in this way a bit more and and show that you do. I don't want to push the analogy between management and parenting too much because I think it leads to some wrong conclusions. But it's a bit like how I always am a bit dismayed to realize that, um, you know, if I like my kid not to just be on screens all the time. I actually am going to have to do that myself as well. You know, Dang you can't it. just you can't just lay down the law. You actually have to embody it. And in the same way, you know, if if you are asking people who uh, report to you in the workplace to prioritize some project, then you can be open about and allow and allowing of the conversation about what they're going to deprioritize. Because in a finite situation, focusing on something means not focusing on other things. You can absolutely demand high performance and high energy and, and, and discipline, but you can stop short of demanding impossible combinations of things, right? Which is that people should spend all their time focused on priority A, but also somehow on, on priority B. I think that um, organizations more generally have some scope to set up those kind of collective temporal boundaries that we were talking about. I'm wondering... You, you kind of touched on this, but what about those of us who maybe don't have much power over the amount of time that we put into our work? Maybe folks who are stuck in an over-demanding job that they can't afford to lose. What would you have to say to that? If you are in a situation where impossible demands are being made upon you, right? If you're in a situation where it isn't possible for you to, you know, keep your job and keep a roof over your head unless you're working to a degree that is crazy making what you can still do internally is to there is still a psychological liberation in understanding that it is impossible to do impossible amounts of things that you are always making some kind of decision about what to do with your time even if it's a decision that doesn't feel like it has much freedom in it because you know you're not going to render yourself homeless or make make it so you can't feed your family or something once you understand why you're doing it so if you're what you're saying honestly is like look I really don't like this job. I really don't like the fact that I don't get to spend a proper amount of time with my kids. But I've thought it through. And right now, this is actually the best way to do what I have the, it, within my power to do for those kids and for other values that are meaningful in my life. 
then it becomes meaningful activity. Now, it does not mean that it's all right that we have a society that puts people in this situation. The political side of this is separate. But from an individual perspective, I think if you can understand why you keep on doing something that you don't really want to be doing, well, firstly, you might see that you have more choice than you realized and that actually you can uh, change your circumstances to some degree or in a radical way. And even if you decide that actually you can't, you've still gone through that process of making it conscious, of understanding why you're making the trade-offs with your finite time in the way that you are making them. You used a term just a minute ago called psychological liberation. Can you just say one more word about what you mean by that? I mean a kind of inner freedom, even if you are not sufficiently, you know, socially, economically powerful to to turn that into changes in your in your circumstances. So, you know, and none of us are completely powerful in that situation. So to some extent, all of us have to accept the world demanding impossible things of us. What we don't have to do is sort of internally collaborate with that and say, yes, okay, I've got to find a way to do this impossible amount of stuff. It's on me and I've got to find the right combination of systems and the right reserves of personal self-discipline. And then finally, I can do it. No, you can say, actually, this combination of demands is impossible. Uh, this combination of pressures and demands is, is kind of BS. That doesn't mean that I can walk away from it. I still have to decide what I'm going to pour my energy into. But you don't have to collaborate and think like, okay, it's on me to figure out a way to do an impossible quantity. And that, I think, is what I mean by psychological liberation. So what would you say to a person who you know, gets somewhat freaked out by this notion of their own finitude? What I would want to say is... I'm sort of exploring a particular ramification of being finite, which is the fact that every moment of time involves sacrifice. There's always going to be more things that you could have done with a life than you'll actually have time to do with a life. So the the message to people who are freaked out by that is like, I'm just talking about what is already the case, right? Uh, it's not that I'm saying you should sacrifice everything else in order to do one particular thing with the next hour or day of your life. It's like, you're already doing that. And we can do it unconsciously or we can do it consciously. And it is uncomfortable to bring it into consciousness, but it is really rewarding to bring it into consciousness for some of the reasons we've already touched on. And I think the philosophers who've really written about this through history have said, like, you know, it doesn't make all the anxiety go away. It replaces one kind of anxiety, which is the anxiety of avoiding the truth with something a bit more authentic, something a bit more, it's still kind of stressful in a way, right? Because it's stressful to be a human, but it's very honest because mm. you're in touch with how things really are. And I think that makes a big difference to the experience of life. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of being with what is, allowing what is, seeing what is, feels like a bit of a return to stoicism. Is that mm -hmm. right? I, I think so. Yeah. Stoicism, for those who are a little hazy on the concept, is a philosophy with roots in ancient Greece and Rome that teaches us how to be calm, resilient, and emotionally stable in the face of turbulence and unpredictability. A hallmark practice of Stoicism is to imagine the worst that can happen and then come to an understanding that the worst is survivable. Rather than focusing only on what's rosy, it's remembering that we can endure difficult things, like, for example, our own finitude. I mean, I think... Um there is a huge amount in, in Stoicism that, well, as many have pointed out, that overlaps a lot with 
a Buddhist tradition that overlaps a lot with and has been adapted into sort of modern traditions like cognitive behavioral therapy and all sorts of things, then it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean accepting that everything must always stay the same as it is now. It means, to me anyway, accepting that things are as they are right now in this moment. And that can seem like, well, obviously things are as they are right now, but but the whole lesson of, you know, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, the whole history of that kind of thinking is just how much effort we put in to not not fully feeling what it's like to be where we are right now. Well, I hear a lot in culture that we should be present in the moment or some spiritual leaders put it like be here now. But what what do we do when we're just having a really terrible moment? It's a super interesting way of of phrasing that. I mean, one of the things I write about in the book is how difficult it is to sort of try to be here now, to try to be in the moment. There's almost no tactic more guaranteed to pop you out of the moment than to start sort of fretting about whether you're sufficiently in the moment. There's very good reason to believe that that's associated with with less suffering, that, that actually the kind thing to do to yourself when you're in a really awful moment is to do what you can to bring your attention to what it really feels like. And I think it's not quite the same point, but I think one something that sort of points suggestively in this direction is the experience that we all have of being in some kind of a crisis, some moment where there is absolutely no question about what you should be doing, where all time management systems and to-do lists and plans go by the wayside. And the extraordinary thing about those experiences is that although they are not pleasant, you are freed from a certain kind of time-related suffering in those moments because all choices are taken away. Mm. And and it, it makes you see that like a big part of our suffering the rest of the time, I believe, is is that sort of second guessing about well, could I be using my time in a better way? In those moments when there's no option, there is a certain kind of calm that descends. And, uh, you know, I suppose the aspiration is to have a bit more of that calm at all the other times as well. Speaking of finding calm, remember Gilbert Corrales from the beginning of the episode? Let's go back to his original question. How can also gain patience and be okay with the fact that it's going to take time to accomplish the things that I wish will to be happening overnight. So how can Gilbert find acceptance in the fact that he can't finish everything he wants to do by the end of the day? Well, I think we have the answer. Take stock of what's meaningful to focus on in this moment and try to allow yourself to sit with the frustration you feel right now. It's a little uncomfortable and sometimes it might feel like, why can't I send emails, empty the dishwasher, run a meeting and read my kid a story all at the same time? But there it is. Life is just finite. And that can be very calming. I certainly don't think I have this all worked out, this sort of sane approach to time. I don't think that it's necessarily possible for us to reach some kind of perfect relationship with time. And in a way, one of the one of the responses to my book that I'm always makes me a little uneasy is like sometimes people say, well, I really benefited from these insights but I'm worried that I won't be able to sort of perfectly implement the, the <laughs> philosophy. And I always want to say like, yeah, me too. And actually that is its own kind of mm-hmm. uh, unattainable perfectionism. So not only am I hopefully offering some advice on how to lessen the struggle with time, but also like 
there's probably always going to be some kind of struggle with time mm -hmm. for mortal humans with finite lives. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking there's just so much common humanity in this idea that we all struggle to think through how we want to spend our time and then equal amount as common humanity in our striving to even do balance very well. So that's right, right. compassionate of you to say. <laughs> Well, Oliver, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderfully thoughtful and provocative and even for me, therapeutic, which is also how I experience your book. So thank you so much for this. I'm really glad to hear it. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. So takeaways. Number one, if you're a company or leader trying to help your employees have a healthy relationship to time, Remember, it's not enough to just set down policies. You also have to embody this. If you don't want people to feel pressured to email you on a Sunday, well, try not to email them on a Sunday. Number two, when the world seems to impose impossible demands on you, try not to collude with the demands. Sure, there are times when we all have to do things we don't want to do, and sometimes there's more to do than we can easily handle. But internally, we can still ask, what is really, really necessary? Or what matters most here? Number three, instead of aiming for the perfect work-life balance, an idea that can stress many of us out, think about what you'll let be imbalanced, what you can neglect or even fail at for now. Life is full of seasons, so you can always decide to fail at something else later. Finally, remember that life is short around 4,000 weeks for the average human, roughly speaking. So instead of trying to pack everything you possibly can into this time, try embracing the idea of finitude and asking, what's really meaningful to spend my time on? Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. And our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock, Feliz Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lohr, Gabriela Tayenda, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart, and I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. Special thanks to Gilbert Corrales for sharing a part of his story. And of course, thanks to Oliver Berkman for his insight. You can buy his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, online. And find him on Twitter at Oliver Berkman. And for more tips on managing your time at work, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com. couple of people in the entire time I've been talking about this book and going around the place have suggested that it was more weeks than they realized a human got, but almost everybody <laughs> is, is like, that's, funny. that's <laughs> tiny. <laughs>